0: Welcome to the Art and Business of Music podcast with me, Jimmy Davis, where we dig deep into what it means to be a creative and a professional in the industry of music. Today, I am very pleased to say I'm joined by someone who I would consider a broadcasting veteran, a seasoned broadcaster, a legend in the field. And he's very kindly invited me into his home, into the kitchen, and made me a cup of black red bush tea, which I'm very happy about. Adrian Goldberg, welcome to the show, sir. How are you doing?
1: How are you, Jimmy? Good to see you. Always a pleasure to see you. Big fan of your music, so real pleasure for me to do this today. Big fan of you, big fan of Brum Radio, so what could go wrong?
0: (laughs) What a top man. Um, so I'd love to just get a little bit of background on you first, Adrian. Um, I'm aware that your your parents, um, came, well, your dad, came over from from Germany.
1: Yeah, yeah. I mean, I'm a council house kid. Grew up in Northfield, round Ley Hill. A place called Halescroft Square near the Highlander pub, if anybody knows that particular corner of Birmingham. And there were four blocks of flats or maisonettes, which have now been bulldozed, probably for the best. But my mum and dad were both migrants. Uh, my dad was a, a refugee, a German Jewish refugee. He came over as a very young kid on something called the Kinder Transport, Child Transport, mm. which was a fantastic initiative to get children out of Germany at the start of World War II. Did he come over on the last one? Well, well in the last few months. I think okay. my dad came over in June 1939, and when you bear that, bear in mind that war started in September 1939, he was very lucky. He mm. and his young brother got out. The rest of the family sadly didn't, and they didn't survive the war, as you might expect and my mum was an economic migrant if you like if my dad was a a refugee my mum was an economic migrant came over here as many people did after world war ii from ireland and worked in all sorts of jobs a lot of years at the royal orthopedic hospital where she was a domestic but very working class roots really and i'm I'm proud to identify as that. You might look at my house now; it's you know, it's not a, it's only a semi, and we've got a drive. <laughs> but you know, I still identify as working class, really. And because of that background, my dad worked in a warehouse. He worked for a company called Newman Tonks, who older listeners may remember was a big company based in Newtown in Aston, and then he worked for a company called Lawtons in Warstock in Birmingham. So these were classic west midlands companies making stuff out of metal and plastic sending it off to all corners of the country and the world and he worked in the warehouse there and as i say my mum was variously a domestic a cleaner but i think like a lot of migrant families they were very keen for me to get a good education and drummed into me the value of getting a good education
0: yeah and did your did your old man talk to you much about that experience of you know being transported over from germany and the things he might have seen. and
1: Yeah, my dad was very open about it. Certainly when we were growing up, it was something that was talked about in our family and I'm glad that it was. I know that some people understandably found it really difficult to talk about their wartime Mm. experiences and particularly those who'd got family who perished in the Holocaust. But my dad was always open about it and particularly as I got into my teenage years I was quite interested in that area of his life so he used to sometimes go to meetings big reunions with other kinder transport kids and a couple of times I went on those with him and it certainly informed my world view and it's informed my politics I suppose and I very much identify with those people who've suffered in history, really. Uh, I mentioned my mom is Irish as well. Of course, the Irish have suffered in history in as well. Yeah, so, yeah. yeah, you know, so here we are sitting in sunny South Birmingham and there's a lot of bad stuff still happens in the world, but thankfully here we are and we live in a mostly peaceful, mostly law-abiding country and that's something that I think you can take for granted, but actually you, you shouldn't take for granted.
0: Yeah, we've got it pretty good, haven't we, to be fair, at the moment. Um, parents and grandparents and their parents before them have been been through some rough stuff, that's for sure. Um, so, you know, despite what's going on in the world at the moment, I think we do have to hold on to that and, and be grateful. Were your parents big fans of radio?
1: They must have been. Is that where the interest came from? Yeah, they must have been. I mean, they probably would never have expressed it like that, but the radio was always on and we were always a radio family rather than a telly family. When I was a little kid, I remember all my mates at school would talk about Noddy and these little kids' programmes. I hadn't got a clue what they were talking about. My mum especially was a real Puritan about not letting me watch the telly as a little kid. we were really rationed. I was much less telly. I was a, a a kid in the in the 60s and there was much less telly available then than there is now. I've got a five-year-old daughter. We ration her telly, but she watches 40 minutes to an hour every day and at weekends she might watch a fair bit. She's very television literate and understands the way narrative works in films, which is... A real eye opener oh, wow. for me. Uh, really impressed. You know how kids get it, and I got a couple of older kids as well who were, you know, very tele literate. But I wasn't because me folks didn't let me watch it, and we always had the radio on. I remember as a little kid, the the old Radio Four Today program was a very much lighter thing than it is now. It wasn't quite so heavy. I remember that being on. I remember Radio Two being on, and then as I got older, the legend that was Ed Doolan being on Radio WM Mm -hmm. and listening to all sorts of fantastic local radio. I mean, I I think that commercial local radio was really broke the mould. I think commercial local radio was actually more adventurous than the BBC ever were when it first started. So you had these people who became great names eventually on the BBC, like Tony Butler and Mm -hmm. Ed Doolan, mould-breaking radio journalists and I listen to them and people like Les Ross, of course, and mm-hmm. you would think listening to that radio is not only a, a good and interesting profession to be in, but I live in Birmingham and the old phrase, you've got to see it to be it, I don't know if that always holds true, but there was a little bit where you thought, well, look, this is happening in in my city, in my area, on my doorstep. So if those guys are doing it, maybe one day I could do it. So there was definitely a little bit about the the groundbreaking radio. I used to listen to Beacon Radio out of Wolverhampton. There used to be a a soul DJ called KKJ. Uh, Carl Kennedy, I think his name is. He's still around. But KKJ was like an Emperor Roscoe. Wolfman Jack kind of character <laughs> spoken that kind of fake American accent. I suspect he had a big Rich round black country accent, really. But he used he used to do hi, welcome to the KKJ show. And and he, he played he played soul music, KKJ was great. There was a, a fantastic soul DJ. I was very much into my soul music called Nikki Steele on mm. uh, Nikki Steele on BRMB, and then Robin Valk who had the rock show then on BRMB. So, ironically, given how commercial radio is now run a million miles away from being really local and left that to the BBC, it was actually commercial local radio initially that drew me in and made me think, you know what, maybe one day I could be a presenter, a broadcaster. Although, if I'm honest, I didn't really think about that in any great detail. Like A lot of kids, I hadn't got a clue what i wanted to be as a teenager even into my early 20s and careers advice then we're talking about the late 70s early 80s careers advice in my experience was absolute (laughs) rubbish (laughs) absolutely hopeless but there you go i ended up finding me finding my way one way or another so you might not have known you know
0: exclusively explicitly what you wanted to do with your life at that age, but it might've been that it planted a seed somewhere, perhaps hearing those local voices, doing something that you thought was interesting, exciting. And then those guys sort of being on your doorstep in a way. Do you think that's important for young people to see and to have those kind of role models like locally? And
1: I do. I think it's very important because when the time came when I thought, oh, maybe I could be on the radio, maybe I should think about doing that. I'd already got that idea in my head that actually it wasn't an impossible dream at the mm. same time it was very difficult it wasn't an easy route to get into it and particularly if you want to be on this side of the microphone if you want to be a presenter there's no obvious route for that you you kind of have to make your own way and I'm not I'm not sure that there is that there can be a, an obvious career path for it but at least I knew that there were people where I lived in the West Midlands Doing the thing that I enjoyed listening to, and which, as a journalist, then I finally thought, actually, maybe I, maybe I should do this. Maybe I could give this a go. And certainly, people like Ed Doolan were an inspiration because Ed, Ed Doolan, who worked initially for BRMB and then for WM Radio Birmingham, and then WM. What Ed did. I think even now was very rare in local radio in that he was popular, people loved listening to him, so he was quite a mainstream kind of guy. But Mm. on the other hand, he would challenge the establishment. He was anti-authoritarian, he was a bit of a rebel and in his favourite phrase, he'd get the politicians and shake them by the throat. (laughs) And I don't think anybody's really done that in the way that he did it before or since... And it was both serious and light-hearted at the same time. And it kind of set, for me, a model of what you can do with local radio. And sadly, I don't think local radio now has the appetite to do that, whether commercial or BBC. I think that's a a real shame. Mm. But at least... We have the example there and we know that it can be done. And certainly when I was broadcasting regularly on WM, I always tried to emulate that and and live up to that model. I should just say in terms of radio, though, the, the other person who really made me want to listen to radio was John Peel. So as somebody sort of first really getting into music, music of my own, as opposed to my older brothers and sisters, getting into music that I chose, that first music was punk. And John Peel was my guide, my tutor, my navigator. And the fact that he would throw in, alongside the Sex Pistols, the new Eagles album, or that he'd throw in a bit of old blues music from Jimmy Reed, again, fantastic. The opposite of your plastic playlist DJ. John Peel played music that he curated, that he loved, or that at least he thought was interesting that to me should be the model for all music radio. And I, again, I wouldn't say that he inspired me to want to be on the the radio, but he inspired me to want to listen to the radio and he helped me develop a love of radio.
0: Mm, we've not had a figurehead like that since, have we really, John Peel? No. And, and, you know, you talk about those really strong voices who aren't afraid to challenge the establishment and the system. Uh, why do you think that we've perhaps lost some of those voices? Are things become a bit watered
1: down? or Yeah, I think if you look at people like John Peel, I mean, John Peel spent many years of his BBC career fighting management. Management mm-hmm. didn't always want him. They didn't know where to put him. Mm-hmm. They didn't know how to pigeonhole him. And there were various times when Peel's show was threatened with being taken off air. Now... That he's past and in retrospect, you know, the BBC would laud him <laughs> as a legend. Mm. Y- you could say the entire existence of six music is down to this world that John Peel created, mm. a kind of indie sensibility that he was responsible for, at least in, in radio terms. I think people who want to be individual just have to find their own platform ultimately. I would say now, if you're looking for that kind of platform... Commercial radio, 100% is not it. Commercial radio is just a sausage factory, a music machine. It's dull. Mm. It's brain dead. Commercial radio, to me, as a listener, has nothing to offer. Why would I listen to music radio? I've got Spotify. I've got Mm. Brum Radio. I've got curated shows there from people who love it. So I don't want to be told what I like by a computer. And I know... Spotify has its algorithms, but I can override them. I can choose my own playlist. Music radio is a no-no. If you're a creative person, can you get on in the BBC? I would say it's harder now. But then it's it's probably never been easy. There's always been suits who want to tie you down Mm -hmm. and make you play the game. Now, I would say if you're interested in radio in the world of audio, community stations like Brum Radio, podcasting, You're your own boss. Yeah, You can do what you want to do. And I think it's a really exciting time for young people coming into radio because I would say to you, the world is as limitless as your imagination. In my office through there, I use a little system called Zencaster. Other things Mm. are available. Zencaster is a, a piece of, it's an app, it's an application. I don't know how it works, but this morning I spoke to, the owner of Sunderland Football Club, who lives in Oxford. He was on his laptop in Oxford. I was in that room through there. And all I've got really? is, a, is a little microphone to do. I've spoken to people in Sweden. I've spoken to people in, in the United States. There's other apps like it called Ringer. But essentially, it means that you can do near-studio quality recording, laptop to laptop, in your own home, step it up a little bit with a decent microphone, get a free bit of editing software like Audacity. You've got your own radio station in your living room. And I've always been drawn to do-it-yourself culture. So, as I say, I was a punk, and when I was too young, I used to go to the Barbarella's nightclub in Birmingham, which people might know. I was too young to go to Barbarella's. I'm still amazed that my parents, who were pretty strict, let me go. But I'd go after school. I would help the bands in with their gear, because I was too young to get in. I'd go from, I was about 15 when I started going to Barb's, and help the bands in, then stay and watch the gig get the night bus home and when i went to those punk gigs a lot of the whole punk ethos was around do it yourself so there'd be people walking around selling fanzines you might get two or three different homemade fanzines homemade magazines where people had scribbled they typed because this was before word processing using a typewriter You're using as opposed to typewriter. a keyboard and yeah. a computer yeah. homemade stencil design wow and then going to a photocopy shop or maybe having a mate at work and just printing them off and stapling them. Now, I found that tremendously inspirational. Mm. Uh, And so I've always been into DIY culture. And I copied that idea. Then a decade later, I started Britain's first football fanzine, the first general football fanzine called Off the Ball. So people might know I'm a West Bromwich Albion fan, but my fanzine was about the way football as a whole was run and the way supporters were demonised. But we started off that using stencil, using a typewriter until we could afford <laughs> a, a word processor and going out in, this, in the 80s, the heyday of hooliganism and selling a football magazine on the street. So, you know, in a sense, I'm a born podcaster because that gives me independence. It gives me freedom and that idea of doing it yourself. So if you are a, a young person listening to this thinking, oh, I, could, I wouldn't mind having a career in radio or doing audio. I can't promise you a career that will make you money. I can promise you endless satisfaction and joy for a relatively small outlay. Get yourself Zencaster, get yourself a laptop. Most people have got a laptop, haven't they? Yeah. Without being paradise. without being, yeah. you know, snooty about it. Mm. And half the, even a half decent mic get cost you less than hundred quid and get uploading, create your own world of audio. It's so
0: interesting that you've come from that background of DIY, independent, get out there on the streets, do it, you know, do what needs to be done. Has that stood you in really good stead throughout your career, do you think?
1: I think it's given me resilience. So I remember one of my first journalistic jobs was writing for a paper that's now gone. Initially, it was the Birmingham Daily News, it was Britain's first free daily newspaper. Oh, wow. And Birmingham Daily News is cracking paper. And it then went to a weekly and it became the Metro News, no connection with the current Metro free newspaper. And it used to have an office on Francis Road in Edgbaston just by Five Ways. And I started doing work freelancing there. And... Because I'm a bit of a butterfly, I can't concentrate on anything for long. (laughs) But I was quite versatile. So I would write them a front-page news story some weeks. My my best weeks, I'd have a front-page news story and have the arts centre spread in the middle and then I'd do a sports story on the back page. And I used to get a real buzz out of that. Yeah, best of both worlds. I loved doing it. And then... I was really prolific. There were people, not many, but one or two sitting in there just picking up a living. And the editor called me in and just said, "Look, sorry, we can't have any, we can't afford any freelancers anymore." You know, that's it. And I said, "Well, how can you not afford me if I'm doing the front, the middle, and the back?" And I suppose you know when you get knocks like that, you kind of you either decide, "Well, do I want to be in this business?" Because there are a lot of knocks in the business of journalism broadcasting generally that just are you either say do i want to be in it for the long run or you know is it really not for me would i like a steady job and i just thought sod you (laughs) i'm gonna show you
0: too much of a rebel for the steady one
1: and uh, i ended up then getting I'd, i'd already started doing a few match reviews for radio wm uh, started putting myself about a bit more, chatting to people in the offices to build up that work. About a month later, the Metro called me back and said, do you want that full-time job?
0: No way. Right.
1: And the money they were offering was a pittance, really. They were being really cheeky with the money. And I said, you know what? Forget it. And and so I think having it, you know, I've got, as you can tell, I, and it sometimes gets me into trouble. I have got a bit of an independent spirit about me. and But I think I think if you've been indie for me indeed means you've decided that you want to do this thing and you've got resilience and if somebody says you can't do it then okay you can't do it on their platform in their place fine but you're still going to do it and so I've got that footing right in from the start so in 2019 I've done a show for a decade on Five Live called Five Live Investigates the BBC decided in the wisdom they didn't want that show anymore that's fine you move on but I still do investigations, but I do them through my podcasting. Mm. So you don't want me, that's fine. I'll find somewhere else to say what I want to say. And I think that's an important thing. If you're looking to work in radio, in audio, in any kind of broadcasting scenario, stuff might be great for four, five, eight or nine years, but you've always got to be ready for the knockback and ready to think, okay, what do I do next? I think there's
0: a there's perhaps an unfair tag placed on young people uh, nowadays. Isn't there that they're perhaps like the snowflake generation or they're giving everything, in, you know, on a silver platter? And I think what you're saying there really reminds me of this idea that don't wait for anybody to come and give you the job. To, don't wait for a saviour. Don't wait for a record label to give you a deal. You know, none of that stuff. Just get put yourself about, build your network, build relationships, put the work in. And yeah, and, and build what it is, grow what it is that you want to do with your
1: life. Yeah, I think is that what... 100%. What and from? so people have speak to me over the years. I mean, I've got three kids, my eldest daughter's 16, I've got a 13-year-old and I've got a five-year-old and, you know, we talk about careers and I see some of their their mates and all that sort of stuff. And through that kind of network, you know, you people sometimes say, oh, I'd, you know, I'd like to be a journalist. What do I do? How do I do it? Or, you know, can you get me into the BBC for work experience? Mm -hmm. If anybody asks me, if anybody asks me, how can I be a journalist be a journalist. Mm-hmm. There is absolutely nothing stopping you now. In the it, When I started doing my fanzine in the, in the 80s, and this is not about saying, by the way, oh, it was, it was a lot harder in my day, <laughs> it's about saying that whatever the obstacles are, and there will be obstacles, you will find a way to overcome them if you, if you want to do it badly enough. And so there were physical things that you had to do to create a football fanzine in the 80s. You know, you had to... Get a stencil to do the headlines, you had to have a typewriter or a word processor once you got a bit wealthier. And you then had to physically go and sell them in the street or ask a shop to take them. There were those physical things that you had to do. Well, now if you want to write, you can write a blog, Mm -hmm. you can advertise it through social media there's still issues about getting yourself an audience and getting yourself a following through that. So as I say, I've recognised that there are obstacles. The obstacles are always there. They just change over time. Mm. But do you want to blog? Do you want to write about music? Do you want to write about politics? Do you want to write about the thing that I can't even think of but that you really care about? Brilliant, write it. You will find friends and contacts through social media. People are usually only too willing to help. Mm. If you want to broadcast about it, do a podcast don't get discouraged if only 10 people listen to it or read it fine next time the next edition it'll be 20 that's a 100% increase you yeah. got you know and and i think you've got to be incredibly thick skinned and just say i'm going to do it whatever comes my way have have you know metal skin let it bounce off because yeah. if you don't have that you won't surviving it but if you really want to do it and you and you just arm yourself like that you'll get through i I can promise you jimmy the amount of times in my early journalistic career when i was rubbish when i cocked up when i said the wrong thing untold times untold (laughs) and the only reason i'm here is not because it really isn't because i'm in any way supremely talented (laughs) or you know gifted in that sense although i have got gifts and i'm appreciative Of of those but it, it's really because I've, I, was, I had a tough hide and I was willing to go back to places where I'd been rubbish and be slightly less rubbish the next day and learn the lessons. It's a familiar tale though, isn't it, Adrian? All, all of the
0: high achievers in the world, regardless of what field they're in, they all have that resilience, tenacity, thick skin, willing to fail and again and again and again yeah, you know, until, yeah, until yeah, they succeed. Yeah. So I think it's a really important point. But you touched on a, a, a few moments ago, your sort of route in to, to radio, which is yes. journalism. And yeah. We were talking just before we came on or started recording, and you were saying that you wrote for some music uh, publications and I wasn't aware of this so yeah yeah awesome. yeah
1: okay so very briefly I, when I left university I hadn't got a clue what I wanted to do but I had written for the university newspaper red brick then as now we were in a very sticky economic period I wrote to about 80 newspapers every weekly regional newspaper every daily regional newspaper that I could find and sent off some samples of my work and got rejected by all but one of them The one exception was the Uxbridge and Hillingdon Gazette. (laughs) And I didn't drive. I went down, got my best jacket on, my best trousers. I probably looked the right dick, I don't know. (laughs) And and went down to Uxbridge. I, you know, travelled into London, got to Uxbridge, which is at the very end of one particular tube line, and got to the offices in Uxbridge, turned up and said, oh, I've come for the job interview for the trainee reporter. Puzzled stares all round. Uh, job interview? trainer. Yeah, yeah, look, here's my letter. Oh, no, that job went two weeks ago. Oh, no. So, you know, <laughs> crushed at that moment. Uh, and so I wrote to all these papers, but I needed a job. Worked for the Regional Health Authority on in Arthur Thompson House, as it then was on Hagley Road next to the Garden House pub. And... Didn't really want to do that job. I hated getting up in the morning to do it. There were lovely people there, people I'm still in touch with, great people, but I was miscast. I was doing Mm. the wrong thing. So I'd set up my football fanzine, went to journalism college uh, in Sheffield. I didn't finish that because I then started sending off reviews. So initially I got a review in Melody Maker. I also started writing then. Can you remember what you reviewed? Yes. Oh, man tell you what i reviewed i reviewed one of my favorite all-time artists robert lloyd okay now robert lloyd had been in the legendary punk bands the prefects he'd then been in the legendary not quite punk band the nightingales mm. who of course still tour now the nightingales still tour this was the period when robert lloyd had signed to virgin records having been the archetypal indie punk icon once pictured on the front of cover of sounds wearing only his v-neck jumper and a t-shirt you know which is like just the ultimate scruff that's how i looked in the 80s as well and he was my inspiration i was in a band uh, a, a band called Pigs on Purpose, which gave its name to the first Nightingale's album. I was in a band called wow. the, the Lowdown. I was in a band called Gold Medallion Slaughterhouse. But I was no good, really. It's it... all coming out. What did you, what did you play? <laughs> I was the, the vocalist. No I'm careful never The front to, man. Careful never to say the singer. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So this review. Now, here's the ethical dilemma for any young journalist. Robert Lloyd was, I suppose, at that stage my musical hero and I'd bought into the whole anti-establishment, anti-record label thing. Robert Lloyd, at this period in his life, had decided to take the king's shilling and he he looked like a conventional rock person, did those kind of photo shoots that you do when you're in the rock business and his band at the time was called i think the new four seasons and it was it was just very conventional compared to what robert had traditionally what compared to what robert had previously done and i slagged him off and no i did and he and he he and I do speak now, <laughs> but, but it, took a, it took a long time. And, you know, even now, I, 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 I would still weigh this up in my mind. Did I write, as a journalist, an honest review of Robert Lloyd's gig as I saw it at that time? Yes, I did. Did I shit from a great height? Can I say that? (laughs) Did I shit from a great height on somebody who'd actually been really good to me in the past and had let me support his band? Yes, I did. So I was an arse, really. I was an arse. If I I didn't like it, what I would do now is I wouldn't tell a lie, but I'd, I'd just not review it. I didn't have to review that gig. Okay. I didn't have to do it, so really? I shouldn't have done it. Really, it was well written. <laughs> That's my experience. So I was an arse. I was an arse then. I was, and I'm an arse now. Let's be honest. With you. <laughs> so anyway, Melody Maker printed that, and Melody Maker liked it. I'd also written for. I'd written two sounds, and I think Sounds saw the review in Melody Maker, and then got in touch with me and said, "Why don't you be our man in the Midlands?" No and because they were a bit more forthcoming than Melody Maker in terms of guaranteeing a certain amount of work i became sounds man in the midlands from 1989 to 1991 when the company that produced sounds decided to pull the plug on it the, the big publishing company IPC. so oh, I did, were, you, were you just reviewing gigs or i was reviewing, reviewing gigs doing or? doing interviews i did okay. the first interview that texas had done in a music paper, for example. Charlene Spiteria. Charlene wow. went to meet her and the guy, was it was the Ali Yeah. in a little cafe in, in London. Um, but I was also writing. I mean, it shows how weird this world is. I, I wrote off, this is what, what, how do you put these two things together? So I sent a review of Napalm Death and Cerebral Fix playing at the Kaleidoscope which was a little underground venue on John Bright Street in okay. Birmingham. Yeah, I sent it off to the Observer newspaper and they published it. Oh, <laughs> and it was kind of about the hardcore scene that was around Birmingham at that time. Birmingham was the leader mm. of the hardcore scene nationally. And you'd have these all-dayers on bank holidays at Kaleidoscope. And if I'm honest, it wasn't 100% my music, but... I like the characters, I like the honesty, and I wrote about it. And the Observer then, for a few months, paid me what, in, to my mind, were ridiculous sums of money for writing about stuff that they didn't know about on the music scene so wow. so I was sort of away then as a, as a freelance really and just just and I wrote for the you remember the old Watson magazine
0: yeah yeah. Um, yeah
1: so I wrote stuff for them the, the guy who edited that Mike Davies, who presents a show on Brum Radio was extremely kind to me as a as an editor and commissioned a lot of work I wrote about theatre for Mike as well as music Mike was a, a really good guy top bloke So one way or another, then having left the regional health authority to go to journalism college and not finish my course, (laughs) I then managed. I just started to piece together um, a a freelance career, really, and not not enough to kind of buy a house or have a car, but enough to pay my rent, enough to eat, enough to get by, enough to eat my food. And, And at that stage, that was all i wanted really yeah yeah it sounds it's, a bit it's like really all were. i want now yeah. to be honest you know <laughs> it's what we all want
0: adrian just just to come back to when you started writing them for the for the music publication yes. was there one moment where you thought oh, i can't believe i've landed this like a, a gig or a, a review or
1: an interview i'll tell you what the weirdest one for me right in 1989 i was sent to cover glastonbury for sounds i wow. was just me no just, just my, so there was a photographer, a guy called Ed Sirs, who went along with us as well. But when I was sent, as far as I knew, and this is what I was told by the reviews desk, that I was covering all three days of Glastonbury on my no own. Wow! And it was an amazing thing. It was the first time I'd ever been to Glastonbury. There were some amazing performances that year. A couple of artists who I like uh, very much: Van Morrison. Elvis Costello. Legends. And the Wonder Stuff played. The Wonder Stuff were great as well. Local now, band. as it yeah. turned out, there were a couple of other journalists had managed to kind of blag tickets. And then because they got tickets, they wrote a couple of extra reviews. But if you go back to Sounds from whatever that date was in late summer 1989, I, I wrote a massive screed about about Glastonbury. So it was an incredible privilege to do it. The only downside was Glastonbury finishes obviously on the Sunday night. Yeah. On the Monday, Mike Davis was having his first week off in years from what's on because he never trusted anybody else to do it. Mike trusted me to do it. So I was up all night <laughs> writing my finishing my review of Glastonbury Sent that off, as you had to do. You used to have to go, to send it off, I used to have to go to a travel agency in Hall Green called Kipling Travel because they had a fax machine. Wow. You know, pre-internet, pre-email. Um, so I, they sent, I sent this massive review off uh, on the email and then having not slept and having done Glastonbury for three days, I then had to go and spend a day, in fact a week, editing what's on. I think Mike having had his first (laughs) holiday in twelve years came back. Was it the worst issue of the (laughs) (laughs) day? Mike came back at the end of the week absolutely fuming. But (laughs) Yeah, I've been to Glastonbury, Mike. Come on, you got you got to forgive
0: me. You got to give me that you had a one. A decent excuse, man. To be fair, I'm really interested. How do you keep a track of what's going on at Glastonbury if you're there for the entire three days? You're writing a review of it. Are you making notes? Are you scribbling stuff down? Are you- yeah, I
1: always used to go to gigs with a with a little sort of piece of paper. I used to get a piece of A4 paper and then just fold it up into four and scribble me notes like that. And I'd always just scribble down phrases or little notes to remind me little aid memoirs of of what i'd seen but really when i wrote it it was just a big splurge of of words really but it was i was again that was i was really blessed to do it it's weird isn't it you know you think of the status that glastonbury has now and in 89 i think it was quite a big deal but not quite a big deal uh, not quite as much of a big deal as it is now Mm. and i think probably sounds might have been a bit asleep on the On the job, if I'm honest, given that you know, instead of and I was amazed to get the offer to do it because I wasn't one of their sort of top writers. That John Robb was around at that time, and they had a lot of very good writers. Sounds was the paper that really covered the whole grunge scene, bands like Nirvana. I know the Mm. NME these days, with hindsight, is seen as the kind of the big music paper of that era, but Sounds was really on the money with punk. They had a guy called Jeff Barton who champions heavy metal when heavy metal was really unfashionable. Jeff Barton was your man. And then in the grunge era, bands like Nirvana, Soundgarden, Mudhoney, Mm. they were all in sounds first, you know. So I was really proud to be associated with that paper and it was just really, really Really sad when they pulled the plug. It was sad for me because I lost one of my major sources of <laughs> income. But ironically, I'd written a thing for Sounds. I'd written a double-page spread just about a week before called The Great Rock and Roll Dwindle, which was about how at that period... It was just a bit of a lull, I think. It was nothing clearly nothing terminal, but about how small gig venues were struggling. Uh, not Nothing like they are at the moment, mm. uh, but how small gig venues were struggling... And I just spoke to gig promoters from all over the country. It was just one of those periods when live music was going through a fallow period. I don't know whether some bigwig, IPC, who owned the company, looked at that and saw, blimey, nobody's going to watch these bands anymore. Let's close the paper now. But anyway, that was the end of Sounds, and it was it was very sad.
0: So journalism was your route into the world of music. Mm your sort of entry point, what was it in radio? What was your big kind of break in radio and what what got you into it?
1: I think the fact that you could earn money out of it (laughs) was quite important. Yes, that was enticing. Uh, But so because I'd done – it was also partly about – because I'd done this football fanzine and although I – to go back, I had started in journalism, but I'd started writing before I'd been to journalism college. And as I said, I didn't finish journalism college. Mm. I just wanted to write really – and get stuff out there. And because I'd started my football fanzine, again, before I went to journalism college, I'd started making contacts. And there was a lot of politics around football in the late 80s. Margaret Thatcher wanted to force fans to have an identity card or a membership scheme, as they called it. We called it the ID card scheme. Right, And I was very active politically in organising big, protests about that, organising a national petition, which ended up getting hundreds of thousands of signatures. And eventually, the Conservatives backed down from that. But as part of that work, I'd been interviewed quite a lot by Radio WM. So when sounds went down, I thought, well, look, I've got a lot of people who I've spoken to on that radio station. Could I maybe make make my way there and I just literally knocked the door and said look I've been on your station as a guest loads of times, so you clearly think I can talk, talk all right mm. how about letting me go and have a go at it and they did and they sent me off again you know that that's so lucky isn't it at that point in time they just didn't have a whole load of presenters or broadcasters who were willing to travel on a Tuesday night to Scarborough which it often involved because uh, that you know that took out a That takes out a whole day, really. So at that stage, I was the go anywhere, do anything man. I said, Look, you know, wherever you want me to go, I'll do it. So I covered a game. I covered Warsaw at Aldershot. I was rubbish.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Doing live commentary, or were you sort of just feeding? It was just the reports back. Yeah, just
1: the reports back, Aldershot, Warsaw. And then probably for the next couple of years, I became their regular Warsaw man which I really liked and I'm very happy to... I missed missed going to the baggies, but I was obviously trying to make my way in broadcasting. Uh, But then, over time, the money wasn't great and I had a few words about, do I always have to do the away trip? Do I always have to go to Scarborough on a Tuesday night? And the answer came back, yes. Uh, And I said, oh, come on, cut me a deal, give, give me a break. Anyway... Of the next 15 matches that I covered, 14 were away matches. So, <laughs> I, you know, at the end I just said, look, I, you know, and it, it just it's just that thing, isn't it? I think to get on and to get in, you've got to be the go anywhere, do anything person. You've also got to know your own value and you've also got to know about a balance between work and, and domestic life and at that stage, because I'd be on massive journeys every weekend, often in the week, I wasn't getting any kind of social life or personal life. And that's always a balance as well. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, so where did it go from
0: there? When you know, when they gave you the, the, the 14 away trips <laughs> out of 15, did you say, all right, enough's enough now and start looking at other options? Yeah, or... yeah. And I just yeah.
1: started working on various publications. As I say, I'd worked a bit for The Observer. I'd worked for Sounds. I just just kept, as long as you a freelance, you've got a couple of plates spinning at any point in time. You're doing all right. And although I sort of fell out with the sports department at WM, there were other bits of the station that would have me on. So I would cover for Ed Doolin's show, for example, when he was off and started working my way into proper presenting, if you like. As I say, there's no obvious route to presenting on stations like the BBC or even on commercial radio. There's no career path as there is for producers. So you've just got to say, I am a presenter and give yourself every opportunity, which is why doing podcasts, why doing what you can on stations like Brum Radio is a brilliant thing to do because th- what's the difference between a radio presenter and somebody who isn't a radio presenter? The radio presenter presents radio programmes or mm. podcasts. That's that's the only difference. Yeah. So you've got to give yourself the chance to do it and say, I'm going to do it. So I worked that way and then in about... Ninety-eight, I got a very big break. Adrian Childs, who some of you may have heard of, <laughs> couldn't do a a special World Cup news desk for BBC Breakfast News. Now, Adrian wasn't somebody I particularly knew, but he was aware of me. When he couldn't do it, he suggested my name. So I got a call out the blue. I remember being by the post office in the Jewelry Quarter, saying, can you come down to London and do an interview? I was was obviously in the BBC system and I was known, but this guy said, can you come and have a chat with us? I had one meeting with him in a pub in London and they offered me this two-week stint. Every morning I would do a sports desk. It was like a funnies sports desk. So you'd look at clips of players falling over, clips of... People maybe arguing with people in the crowd. Was it an Alan Partridge style day to day on the sports <laughs> desks? Well, they, it was. It was. It was aside from their regular sports desk. So this okay. would be a kind of sarky, funny okay yeah. sports desk. So I did that for two weeks. I'd never done. Had I ever done? What had I done? I, I think I had I'd made a little. I made a few films for the Really Useful Show, which was a, a consumery. Daily programme as well that went out of Pebble Mill. So I'd already started working there. And again, I just knocked a door of somebody who I'd met somewhere else. Anyway, all of that culminated in me, then getting an invitation to go down and have a chat with the editor of Watchdog. Watchdog at that time had had a really bad run. It kept getting into trouble with the Broadcasting Standards Authority, which is the forerunner of Ofcom. Okay. There were outrageous things that were done on one occasion... A producer had filmed cockroaches crawling all over a kitchen, but that producer had spliced in footage from a different hotel. Oh, wow. <laughs> and there were some very, very dubious practices. <laughs> so when I arrived, this was kind of last chance for lo- saloon for Watchdog. It was like, you, if you're going to have a credible consumer programme, you can't, be doing that Mm. and and the the Broadcasting Standards Authority was really after the program so I was part of the new broom sweeping clean and I'd obviously got some history of doing consumer, consumer journalism with the really useful show I'd done a bit of telly with this World Cup football desk which had obviously put my name up there a little bit for them and I ended up doing four years on Watchdog as their reporter. Go anywhere, do anything. That was my... Uh, I think I ought to adopt that as my business logo, really. But I did four years uphill and down dale for Watchdog, and I loved it. It was really hard work. I was going everywhere to do stories, every corner of the United Kingdom, which I loved, and working with really talented people, working with Anne Robinson, who was not popular with the team, She was very harsh and cutting to some people. But she seemed to like my work. I think ultimately she didn't see me as a threat. I wasn't a threat to her. (laughs) Uh, And she knew I was hardworking and I think she respected Mm. that. And so Anne Robinson, for a time anyway, championed me. I I was fine as long as Anne Robinson was there. She was, uh, you know, I went. I ended up, I mean, in the weird world of television, darling, I ended up going round to Anne Robinson's house no she, way. in uh, Gloucestershire and how weird to see Anne Robinson shuffling around her kitchen in her slippers and <laughs> cooking me dinner. <laughs> You're joking. But she was lovely and I took my mum and dad down and, you know, they went to see, they sat in the gallery, which is where the programme is is broadcast from, where it's edited and mixed, mm. and... I was really pleased to be able to do that for my mum and dad and just get them to London and get them to shake hands with Anne Robinson. And that was a little bit of yeah, I really that's good to do. And then Telly being telly, Anne Robinson moved on. She got the job on the quiz show, The Weakest Link. Yeah. Yeah. Change of editor, change of presenter. I'm out of there. Sadly. I loved it though. And you know. I loved it. So that's just just the way it goes. Do you still get a Christmas card from Anne? I don't get a Christmas card from Anne. No, sadly. (laughs) (laughs) But Anne, if you're listening, she was great. And she she was in many ways my best tutor. I mean, it's obviously worked for a while in journalism by that stage, but she was my best tutor in journalism. The closest thing I've ever had to a mentor. She could get to the heart of a story what matters about this story what do people care about and how do you write it do you need that word do you need that word do you need that word do you need that, word? You need that word? if you don't need it get rid of it and really harsh judge in some ways but right to the point and some of the editions of watchdog that i presented would have 12 or 14 million viewers wow that she presented that i reported on yes. so you'd get 12, 14 million viewers, regular audience of 6 or 7 million. So, again, fantastic thing to do, fantastic thing to have done. So did you go from Watchdog when that part of the journey ended to talk sport? No, so I did Watchdog and then I managed to, because at that point then we were living in London, lived in London for four years. I was with my missus, who's from Birmingham, and we talked about having kids and she we wanted to have kids we didn't want to bring them up in London just you know we'd seen a few dodgy teenagers around (laughs) a bit where we lived in Tooting in South London I love Tooting and we decided if we're going to have a family let's raise a family in Birmingham and she then got a job presenting she then got a job producing arts fest this big free weekend festival of arts which i think was a fantastic thing for birmingham i think it's a real tragedy it's gone absolutely and so at that point then i started looking at my old contacts in birmingham again good timing i managed to get the the show presenting the breakfast show back at wm where obviously previously done work. Hang on uh, a minute, right? You say I managed to get the for show at WM, <laughs> like that's just some sort of run-of-the-mill everyday gig that comes along and lands in I know, I know. Well, I, I can't tell you how was chuffed... Was it just timing? Yes. It, it, yeah. I can't tell you how chuffed I was to get it. Uh, and, you know, I, I, obviously I had a sense that things were coming to an end at Watchdog, so I sort of put my feelers out. But, yeah, absolutely. And what a fantastic gig to get Mm. to do WM and when it became known that I was sort of heading back to Birmingham I was then put in touch with the people who were doing the politics show in the Midlands though this big new show was being launched the politics show you'd have half an hour out of London with Jeremy Vine and then you'd have half an hour of regional Local politics. is TV again. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. So off the back of Watchdog, I managed to land the gig there. So I presented the politics show in the Midlands for four years. So, I mean, that's a great combination of things, the breakfast show on WM and the politics show in the Midlands. And that came to grief, really, because of internal politics. There were things happening at WM that I didn't like. There were personalities that I didn't get on with. It's probably the only time in my career where I've thought, I'd, I'd, as, as a broadcaster or as a journalist, I don't want to be here. Wow! And if I'm honest, I think that I got a young child when things started getting a bit difficult. My first, my first daughter was born in 2004. Getting up every day at four o'clock. Mm. I'm I'm an early riser, but getting into that, that sort of time span that's really difficult mm. wears you down yeah. so i might not have been at my best at that period in my life and but there were things going on at wm in that period that just made me feel uncomfortable in my working environment so i said right that's it i'm gonna i'm just gonna jump off and see what happens next so Was that I, I took moment. a risk it, it,
0: For you, yeah. What was Coming sad was, room, I, if I'm
1: honest, it was very sad because I'd grown up listening to WM, loving WM, mm. and I loved doing the politics show. It very quickly became clear to me that if I didn't have the profile of being on the breakfast show at WM, I then couldn't continue with the politics show as well. So that came as a bit of a surprise. Didn't mm. really want that nasty shock, but that's what happened. And I then, again, going back to this resilience, I then set up my own blog. My own website, The Stirrer, which focused on West Midlands news and politics. So I took a I took a gamble. I took what by any objective standards was a really silly gamble. Because I could have stuck it out at WM. I could maybe have been moved to a different time slot. I don't know. But I just reached a point in my head where I didn't at that time want to be there anymore. So that that was sad. That was sad, but very much. My mindset was right. Okay, I've done that. Let's do something else.
0: <laughs> I love that. You know, not afraid to jump ship, not afraid to try something new, get out of your comfort zone.
1: All of those things I think. Yeah, are important, yeah, and learning you know. new skills. You know, mm. and I think as you get older, I do have a real thing about ageism, Jimmy, because I hear people talking about older people and younger people and all that. I, I just think. Of course, young people have got to be given opportunities, don't get me wrong, and people, you know, with all sorts of backgrounds have got to be given opportunities. But I think a lot of people, you know, I'm in my 50s, a lot of people like me want new challenges, want to learn new things... And at that stage, I mean, I was in, what was I then, probably in my 40s, setting up a website was really fascinating. Just the mechanics of setting one up, of how do you manage a daily news churn? I made loads of mistakes. Mm-hmm. Did it all the wrong way. I could do it now, today. I would know exactly what to do, but <laughs> you, you get these opportunities once and you, and you do your best with them. And the same now with podcasting. You know, I've made loads of mistakes, but it's fascinating. It's fascinating to learn and develop and grow your skills. And I think that employers are going to be open to the fact that, that people at all sorts of ages, if they've got the right mindset, are going to be fresh and enthusiastic. I'm as fresh and as enthusiastic, I honestly believe, today as I was when I first started, and I have a lot more knowledge. So that's a good place to be. Isn't it?
0: Absolutely. I love that. So you mentioned there... That- about developing skills
1: yeah and, and
0: that you have done in various guys yes. you know throughout your career <laughs> trying different things. If there's any young people listening to the show or anyone of any yeah, age yeah, that yeah. wants to embark on that journey yes. of podcasting, you know, perhaps looking at broadcasting as a career option, what are the skills you need to develop, would you say? What are the sort of the main elements you need to be focusing
1: on? I think any and as many practical, technical skills as you can and the great way about the world is set, that set up the way the great way about the the way the world is set up now is that it's so much more user friendly than it used to be stuff is designed to be done by ordinary people so go back to the things we said earlier create your own blog learn how to drop i mean for a lot of people this will be second nature already they won't even mm-hmm. need to need to go and do this but develop your video editing skills you know my daughters can do Great edits on Instagram, fantastic. But do more of those, do the best that you can, learn how to do it, do it all right first, then be brilliant at it. You know, all those skills that you get from just playing with social media are Mm. all relevant skills. But radio editing, there is free software that I use, I only use this editing software called Audacity. It's free, it's free, and you really can get to grips with it very simply. But whatever your interest is, just throw yourself at it and learn as many skills as you can. Don't rely on somebody else to do it for you. The more you can do yourself. Of course, having friends, having colleagues is great. But the more you can do yourself, then the more independent you will be. But I do a lot of my stuff with other people, don't get me wrong. I think collaboration is important as well and building your networks. Yeah,
0: absolutely. It's where the magic is, isn't it? Collaborating with people to a degree. Yeah,
1: yeah. I think you're absolutely right. The information's out
0: there. It's at people's fingertips. It's accessible. People have got a supercomputer in their pocket now, which, you know, 30 years ago, like we were touching on, who would have thought that you could create your own
1: radio show in the comfort of your own home? Yeah, and we're talking about technology. I mean, I've got my phone here. You know, on this, I'm holding it in my hand, dear listener, my iPhone, but other phones are available. (laughs) But, you you know, you can record into this. There is a voice recording. Mm app for this and believe me professional broadcasters use that i've seen people doing interviews you might get a little a little wind sock for the end of it if you're ever doing anything outside but you don't need it and you you could record a rant into this i do things on youtube adrian goldberg's minute reviews
0: brilliant so Love them.
1: i will review football matches i'll review the baggies games i've seen when i get time i'll review movies i've seen books i've done and I, a good one. Some of them, like I did the uh, the last episode of Line of Duty, and the way YouTube's algorithms work, if you're lucky, you'll get caught by one of the algorithms. So if there's a a program clip, you might then be the next video uh, to it
0: in line. Yeah. So,
1: and that's nothing that you've done. That's the algorithm that's done that. But one of my YouTubes of. Line of duty, which is just me talking into my computer in that room, has <laughs> got thousands of views. It's ludicrous. Brilliant. Some of them get about 38 views. Yeah. I'm not worried because I'm doing it because I want to do it. Nobody's making me do it. Could I try and create a business around that? Probably not. Do I want to? Oh, it might be all right. But <laughs> anyway, I do it. But I've, you know, I've learnt how to do it it's really basic any of our younger listeners will know how basic it is literally to press record (laughs) and upload it to youtube Mm. but again all those things show willingness they show interest and they show at least a very basic technical skill and i think it's all about wanting to do it and uh, you know that is the single most important skill for any budding journalist broadcaster presenter do you really want to do it and then you say yes and then I say no but do you really (laughs) want to do it and if you can honestly say no I really really want to do it but go and do it there is nothing nothing stopping you just and that armor that you have I'm not I'm as prone to getting upset getting hurt being slighted as anybody else's we all are it's a very human thing so you've got to deliberately put that armor on. i'm not born with more armor that resilience than anybody else you've got to put it on and say i'm going to wear that armor
0: wise wise words and yeah dude go and check out adrian's one minute reviews particularly his review of joker oh, i thought it was fantastic the film joker was just brilliant and much more interesting than listening to mark kermode waffle Island on radio five live <laughs> Uh, so, all right, so we focus there on some of the technical skills that people can be perhaps focusing on. But as a presenter, yeah. Adrian, and I'm, I'm asking this question because I want you to, <laughs> to give me the golden nugget answer that I'm looking for. You know, what should a, someone who wants to be a really great presenter
1: be focusing on? Listening which is what you've done, Jimmy, Uh, as I've rambled on here. Listening is the single most important asset for any radio presenter. People think about radio presentation in terms of how well you can talk, how funny you are. Uh, Those are all quite important. How fluent you are, all of that. The single most important asset for any radio presenter, for speech radio, is to listen. And you can tell... A presenter who is engaged with their subject, who is engaged with the story, and one who isn't. And the one who isn't goes down to the next question on their list, and then the next question. They'll have been handed a sheet of paper, or they'll be looking at a screen that has been compiled by their producer, and they would just be going through the motions. And then there'll be people who'll listen to something that is unusual that crops up in that interview, and they'll say, Wait a minute, did you just say? X, Y and Z. The worst example I ever heard was Victoria Derbyshire on Radio 5 Live. She was reading a cue. So the cue is the first bit of your statement before you interview somebody. And uh, in a fast-moving news environment like 5 Live, your cue, this is what the story is about, will be written for you probably by a producer. When I presented on 5 Live and did the late-night shows and did my weekly programme, I made a point of writing my own as much as I could, because you say it in your own language. Okay. But sometimes in a fast-moving news environment like Five Live, you're not going to do that. Victoria Derbyshire started reading this cue, She stumbled over it, and then she said, who the hell wrote that? Live on <laughs> air? Yes. Wow. And it's a bit like, a, a, you're destroying a bit of the magic, but people probably know that they're reading off a screen. Fine, but you've got to take responsibility for what? you say and what you do yeah and be a good colleague not embarrass or humiliate them on but ultimately listen to what people are saying and go with it so you might have an idea in your head what's this interview going to be here are my list of questions that's all sensible but if your interviewee takes you off in an unexpected or different area that is more interesting the one that you've mapped out go with it just as you would if you were down the pub With your mates, Mm. if your mate starts telling you a story that you hadn't expected, instead of chatting about the football or your kids and they say something really outside of your normal realm of experience, for me, you go with that. So listen, it's not about what you say, it's not about how funny you are, although those things are all great. (laughs) Listen, listen, listen.
0: Yeah, you were given two ears and one mouth for a reason. (laughs) Absolutely. So, all right, we're coming to the end of this very privileged interview. i have only I've just started. I'm only just warming up You've got to me. <laughs> you go swimming in a minute. I Come on. going um, Let's talk about some career highlights, you know, what have been the real standout moments of your career, Adrian, and the bits where when you're talking to the grandkids. Gosh, you're going, oh, gosh.
1: Um, well, my eldest is 16. I hope I'm a long way from grandkids yet. <laughs> and honestly, I don't think, I do think that one of the keys to kind of, staying in the game and doing as well as you can is is not to look back, really. Mm. So that John Peel, his staple answer, whenever asked, you know, what's your favourite record of all time? The next one I'm going to listen to. And I do feel that a bit about work. You know, what's my career highlight? It's the next podcast I'm going to make, the next radio programme I'm going to make. I've won a couple of awards, so nights stick out in your mind when you've won... An award I won a, a the Midland Media Award, Radio Presenter of the Year, a couple of years. That's lovely. That, Love but that. anybody who tells you that awards don't matter, liar. <laughs> 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 so those are nice. And the, the last one I went to, um, it was for a, a few things that I did, but I had to put in my own entry, and I paid with my own money to go myself, and paid for my BBC producer Adam to go. No
0: way.
1: So uh, it, when we won. He was absolutely over the Frilled. moon about it. So mm. I was so delighted, so delighted for him, really. But, you know, at the risk of being a bit sanctimonious, is that a word? You know, every day you get up and do it is a privilege and it's an honour. And just to say, I'm making a crowdfunded film about a child abuse scandal in Glasgow The fact that people have put their faith in me to make that film, that just, yeah, that means something. That's ordinary people who are saying, we trust you with our money Mm. to go and tell this story that needs to be told. And that's pretty recent, but I'm so chuffed that that's happened. I still haven't delivered the film yet. I'm working on it. (laughs) But that actually means quite a lot and that people have put their trust. But whenever people put their trust in you, I spoke to... There's a lad who was killed by a former Islamist terrorist who was then on a program. He was still a prisoner, but he was on a programme and he killed this young man at London Bridge, Jack Merritt. And his dad spoke to me, and it was the first full sit-down interview that his dad had given to anybody about his lad being stabbed and the great work he was trying to do to rehabilitate prisoners, one of whom then took his life. But speaking to Jack's dad, Dave, you know, people putting their trust in you and sharing their deepest mm. stories with you, every time you do a story like that, and there's only probably half a dozen of those that you're going to do, that's that's a privilege, that's an honour. So, you know, just thank you to everybody who's ever put their trust in me to, to tell their story, really. That's, that's the ultimate kind of gift that you can have as a journalist to tell other people's stories honestly and truly
0: what a brilliant answer man what's your fa- what's your career highlight the next one <laughs> Just, i love it
1: fantastic
0: listen it's been such a pleasure thank you so much for welcoming me into your home great pleasure this has been such a rich interview adrian we've got so much from it i'm sure the listeners will have as well so thank you so much keep on keeping on